Good morning. Those of you who are here are very brave. Those of you who are watching online are very smart. Uh, <laughs> you know how it is, anyway. Uh, it is great to be here this morning. This morning we are on our penultimate uh, look at the fruit of the Spirit. We are looking at gentleness. Now, having said that, uh, I think it is a obvious from our earliest days that we have a need to know about gentleness. I was just with a few little people, all preschoolers, and uh, just out of the corner of my eye, I saw one three-year-old looking over at another little person who was slightly younger than them, and I saw the hand being raised, and you know, you can't stop it at that point in time. It's going to come down, probably not with a thunderous bolt, but certainly with an impactful uh, smack on the, the, this little person who could barely stand up under their own power, and down goes the kid, and out comes the cry. And what is it that parents immediately are trying to teach uh, the perpetrator of this violent act? You need to be gentle. You need to be gentle, right? Every, everybody knows that we're taught that. And then, of course, whenever we're in the church nursery or maybe we're at preschool or wherever we may be, we repeat that lesson over and over again. No, when you want the toy, you ask for it and they share it with you. You don't push them, right? We need to be gentle. And we repeat this lesson and we learn it okay until we get into our teenage years and we realize that being gentle doesn't get hits on social media, right? If I'm gentle and say nice and encouraging words uh, to those who are out there in the inner sphere, uh, my posts don't get fed into the algorithm that says millions will like this or hate this or click on this. In other words, while we spend the whole beginning of people's lives teaching them to be gentle, we reward them for actually being quite harsh. We reward them for being mean in the words that they use and the actions that they take. And so what do we do with a passage like this? I think sometimes even people who grew up in church come to the concept of gentleness and we're like, is that really necessary? Is, is gentleness, uh, you know, really the thing that I need to pursue? And the answer is yes. The Apostle Paul, when he is talking to this church in Galatia, he wants them to grow in every spiritual virtue. He knows that for that to happen, it requires the Holy Spirit working in the life of the believer so that they will manifest all of these characteristics that reflect God and his character and glory. So we've already looked at love and, and joy and peace and patience and kindness. And, and uh, now we're going to look at gentleness. Now, as we begin to look at this passage, this word is an interesting word. It's often translated as meekness as well as gentleness. And so that gives you kind of the idea of the word group uh, that we're working with is in looking up information about this this week, I came across two definitions, one positive, one negative that I thought was very helpful. Uh, One, one of my old professors, uh, Timothy George, he said, gentleness is strength under control, power harnessed in loving service and respectful actions 
or uh, the great uh, Galatian scholar, uh, Mr. Longenecker, Dr. Longenecker, uh, said it is the opposite of an arrogant and self-assertive spirit. And so that gives us both positive and negative. On the positive, it is strength under control, power harnessed in loving service and respectful actions. And it's the opposite of an arrogant and self-assertive spirit. Now, why would we want to know more about such a thing? Well, let's look at it under three headings today that I think will be helpful. One, this is important because it is the way Jesus describes himself. It's the way Jesus describes himself. Secondly, it is actually the characteristic of those that Jesus says will ultimately win. And lastly, uh, we're going to see that it is the way, just practically speaking, that we are instructed to engage in difficult conversations. Uh, That's really for the takeaway uh, part of the message. But before we get to those takeaways, let's look at this. This is the way Jesus describes uh, himself. We see that over in Matthew. In chapter 11, if you read verse 28 through 30, it reads as following. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. one of my former con- congregation members and uh, the current pastor at uh, the church I served in Naperville, Dr. Dane Ortland, has wrote a wonderful book, uh, appropriately titled Gentle and Lowly. And at the beginning of that book, he points out very clearly that this is the only place in which Jesus gives us a peek into the core of his being, the center of his heart. And uh, Dane does a very good job of showing us that when it talks about uh, uh, the heart, it's not talking about our feelings or our emotions. It's talking about the, the center of our being, our operative principle, if you will. And when Jesus describes his operating principle, this is the way he describes it, that I am gentle and lowly in heart. It's the way Jesus describes himself. What is most true of Jesus, that he is gentle and that he is lowly in heart. It is amazing, isn't it? That many of us claim to love Jesus and follow Jesus. We we, uh, have his name hither and yon in our home. We might even have uh, references to him stitched into our clothing. And yet so often we miss this central characteristic of Jesus. That when he describes the core of his being, he says, I am gentle and lowly of heart. And what does he mean to tell us in this? He means to tell us that he is approachable, that he is patient, that he is loving, that his posture toward us is one of open arms, not a stiff arm. What he is telling us is that he is there to be in relationship with those who will put their faith in him. I love it. Here in this passage where he describes the nature of his heart, he tells us that it's because he is gentle and lowly at heart that when we come to him, we can finally find true and abiding rest. Rest, notice, 
from our labors. Jesus says, you are, uh, you know, who labor and are heavy laden. I love that. Those who labor, those who just keep trying and never seem to accomplish what you're hoping to accomplish, those who keep working but never feel like it's enough, those who keep trying to do everything exactly right but fail over and over, those who labor, Jesus says, I am gentle and lowly, come and you'll finally find rest. Or he says, those who are heavy laden, those on whom or in whose life uh, trouble has come, trials have seemed to be your constant friend. Those people who are troubled because of circumstances in their own life or the life of those that they love. Jesus says, it's for you, the one who feels like you're carrying the backpack of a thousand pounds on your shoulders. He said, because I am gentle and lowly, you will find that when you come under my yoke, that you'll find it light. You'll find it light, not heavy. And so you can have rest and you can have relief. Why? Because of the gentleness of Jesus. But more than that, I want us to see that when he describes who will ultimately be the big winners in this world, notice what he says over in uh, Matthew in chapter 5, in verse 5. He says, blessed or, or, or eternally happy are the meek. Again, this word meek is another way of translating the word for gentle. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, I have heard the wisecracker occasionally say, who wants the earth, right? You know, but I think we need to understand what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I know that when you look around, you think it is the big and it's the bully and it's the pushy and it is the violent and it is the oppressor who ultimately wins. He says, but that's not the way it is in the kingdom of God. The one who is gentle, the one who is meek, that's the one who will be blessed. That's the one who will inherit the earth. Or if we back up uh, to verse 3 in Matthew chapter 5, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you hear how those things echo one another? The one who knows they don't have anything to offer, the one who has nothing to boast in, the one that has nothing really to recommend themselves, the poor in spirit. What they know they have to bring is simply their failures, their need. He says those are the ones that inherit the kingdom of heaven. These statements are upside down kinds of statements. Because if you ask any three-year-old or any internet, you know, a mogul, they will tell you, you know, the way to get ahead is by being rough and tumble by being assertive, by pushing yourself forward. And Jesus says that might be true short-term, but it's not true long-term. Long-term, the ones who truly win are the ones who reflect the heart of Jesus and are gentle in this world. Do we really believe that? I, I know that uh, so often we try to think of ways to get outside of this. I don't know about you, but uh, after every single one of these messages, uh, my small group has been discussing, you know, what, what we've looked at in the passage in the morning. And I can tell you that a common theme, and it's actually been some great conversation. Our, our group has really had a good time discussing it. Uh, but one little note that keeps coming up in our conversation is that we 
seem to be looking, and I don't think we're doing it consciously, but we seem to be looking for where the limits are of these spiritual characteristics. Like, just how loving do I really need to be? Just how joyful am I expected to be on a daily basis? You know, how much peace do I really need to experience? And then when we get down into the, the, the goodness and patience, and I'm sure our conversation will be fun if, if the snow doesn't prevent us from discussing uh, the idea of gentleness tonight. You know, in other words, we're like, I like this in theory. I'm not so sure. I'm super motivated to see this worked out in my life. I'm more than comfortable just continuing to confess my lack of gentleness rather than significantly pursuing the work of the Spirit in my life to manifest gentleness in my life. Is that the way we take it? I tend to find that too often the way that we come to these ethical principles that are laid out in Scripture that should be characteristic of someone in whom the Holy Spirit is living. That, that we constantly are looking for the minimum requirement. You know, it's almost like we're kids in a classroom, right? You know, and the teacher has been lecturing and has been giving us the homework. And, uh, and we ask that fateful question, is this going to be on the test? And, and you know what that question, I mean, every teacher knows what that question really is. Do I have to pay any attention to what you just spent the last 45 minutes teaching me? Right? Or was that just for your own edification? Right? You know, is this going to be on the test? And it's, and it's trying to decide whether this is worth any effort at all. Jesus says, well, let me put it this way. It's the way I describe myself. It's the, the most true thing about me is that I am gentle and lowly in heart. And I am telling you that the people who ultimately in the kingdom of God will come out the winner are not the bullies or the pushy, but it is those who are meek, who will inherit the earth. Do you think that's worth your while? Do you think it's worth praying and asking that the spirit will, will, will increase the manifestation of gentleness in your life? Well, let's go to our last section which is the place of gentleness and the difficult or the hard conversations. Because I think it's in this that we see in our everyday life how valuable gentleness really is and how important it is in terms of the writers of the New Testament. So first of all, uh, we often will hear as Christians that if people out there want to know why we have hope, we always need to be ready to, to give them an answer. And, and I love that. I occasionally will hear a story of someone who says at work or at school, someone walked up to them and said, why are you so joyful in spite of circumstances? How are you so hopeful in spite of the pain that you're suffering? And that's great. Wouldn't it be great if, if we had that question every single week? Right? It comes up. I think many of us could say, I might have had that question once in my life. Uh, but in the uh, uh, epistle of Peter, in 1 Peter uh, chapter uh, 2, we see that famous passage, or chapter 3, excuse me. Let me see, where do we want to start? I'll start in verse 15 of uh, 1 Peter chapter 3. But in your hearts honor Christ. The Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense, that is an apologia, to anyone 
who ask you for a reason for the hope that is in you. That's good. Okay. So always be ready. When someone wants to know, why do you believe what you believe? Why do you, why do you worship Jesus Christ? Why do you follow him? Always be ready to give an answer. But notice he continues. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. I love it. In this passage, the, the implication is that people are going to be asking about the hope that is within you in a hostile way. In other words, the context is saying, look, you might be slandered. Someone might mock you for what you think or believe. They might say that you're wasting your time in following Jesus. He said, but when you give them an answer, notice what he says. He says explicitly that you do it with gentleness. I love it. And respect. You do it with gentleness and respect. They might be slandering you, but your response is gentle and respectful. Why? Because too often we negate our hope by our tone. We negate our dependence on Jesus by our self-assertiveness. We negate the sufficiency of Jesus because of the force with which we apply it. And so he says, look, if you actually have hope, you don't need to scream about it. You don't need to be offensive about it. You don't need to be obnoxious about it because your hope isn't you. Your hope is Jesus. Your hope is Jesus, the one who describes himself as gentle and lowly in heart. And so it would seem a complete contradiction to be obnoxious about how much you love the gentle and lowly Jesus. And so he's saying, in the way you respond, even to the person who slanders you, be gentle, be respectful, continue to live out your Christian life before them so that even though they make fun of you and persecute you, that at the end, they're going to be embarrassed because they kept making fun of and persecuting someone who was living a moral and helpful life, a good life is what he says here in this passage. And that's true about how we respond to people. We do it with gentleness and respect. And so when we articulate our faith, may we do it in the spirit of the Savior we follow and be gentle and respectful. So that's helpful. That's helpful. Well, how about when we have to correct somebody? I mean, come on, let's face it. Whenever we are in a conversation where correction is necessary, uh, it is very easy to lose our minds, right? Uh, if you have ever been a child of a parent, you know what I'm talking about. While your parents, I have no doubt, intended to say, sweetheart, you know, we don't hit our brother. You know, our brother's precious to us, made in the image of God, just like you. We don't hit our brother. You know, we're, we're sweet and gentle. You know, let's, let's ask for forgiveness from our brother. We mean to say that. That's what parents mean to say their, to their children. What they actually say is, stop hitting your brother! Right? I know there are not enough of you to have fallen asleep yet, so apologize for that. Right? You know, I can't believe you're hitting your brother again. Have you lost your mind? Are you an idiot? Blah, blah, blah. You know, 
right? Have you ever been the child underneath one of those gentle rebukes, right? <laughs> of course, you're all sitting here saying, what a sinner that bald dude is that he hit his brother. It was after many provocations, I'm just saying. <laughs> many, right? You know, no, of course I shouldn't hit my brother. Of course, you shouldn't hit your brother or sister or friend or whatever the case may be. But how do we correct people? Is it by amping up the emotional temperature of the room? Is it by making sure we get their attention? I mean, I still remember whenever I was a kid, uh, they had this thing called peewee football. I don't even know if they do that anymore for fear of concussions and brain damage to our precious little children. They were not worried about me having brain damage as a child, which explains a lot. Um, nonetheless, whenever I would play peewee football and you did something wrong, coaches had a very delicate way of getting your attention. They would grab your face mask right in the middle and they would jerk your head toward them and they're usually overweight face and they would shake it just a little bit and they would yell right into your face mask and it would echo inside your helmet. It was great. It was great. For those of you who are millennials and Gen Z and you're wondering why Gen Xers are so messed up, there you go. We got yelled at into our football helmets a lot for those of us who played. But how do we correct one another? Well, Paul gives instruction to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 in verse 24. And he's telling him how someone who follows Jesus, someone who calls himself the Lord's servant, responds when someone's in error. Listen to what he says beginning in verse 24 of 2 Timothy verse uh, 2.24. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him uh, to do his will. Do you hear what Paul is saying to Timothy? He's, he's saying, you correct your, uh, you correct your opponent, they're wrong, they're in error, but you correct them with gentleness. Why? God might lead them to repentance. Now, I don't know about you, I've, I have violated this command so often, true confessions as a servant of the Lord, a paid Christian who works in the church and has done for over 30 years. I can tell you that when people are wrong, sometimes, oftentimes, I need to repent because I am more interested in being right than I am in winning my brother or sister. I'm, I'm more concerned that they know I know the right answer than I am that they actually see the beauty of Jesus. I'm more concerned about my reputation being lifted than I am about their heart being changed. And so I don't actually correct my opponents with gentleness. Why? Because I've lost sight that the goal is the redemption of this person I'm speaking to, not my self-aggrandizement, lifting up. I can say words. Do you ever have that problem? Where you get in an argument and the person is wrong, and it's almost like there's a gleeful delight and rubbing their face in it. It's almost like when we're training our dog not to go to the bathroom in the house. 
they probably don't do this anymore. I have not been a pet owner in a very, very, very long time. So I'm sure this is not a training method. I'm sure it's considered abusive to poor little animals at this point in time. But when I was young, you showed your pet the error of their ways by bringing their nose and face exceedingly close to the damage they did to your carpet. And uh, it's quite literally kind of rubbing their nose in it. I'm just going to let it go at that. That's enough graphic detail for you, right? And there's a weird sense in which we like doing that to people. When they're wrong, or we think they're wrong, or pretty sure they're wrong, we love making sure they know they're wrong, as opposed to correcting them gently, so that they might actually see the truth of God and be changed by Him and live a life that gives Him honor and glory. And so, next time we are in a situation where we have the opportunity to correct someone, check yourself. How about even praying before I utter that phrase or before I have that conversation or make that call or sit down at coffee and I say, Lord, would you help me love them and their growth and grace as much as I love being right? I would like to pray, may I love them more than I like being right, but let's start it with a low bar. Let's at least least love them as much as we love being right. And then, as the Spirit grows us in gentleness, we might love them more than we like being right. And that way, when we have that disagreement, we can be gentle in our conversation with others. This is the beauty of gentleness. In the Old Testament, we, we see that a gentle answer turns away wrath. There is this idea that I am tempted always to give like for like instead of reflecting the character of my Savior Jesus, instead of acting like someone who truly wants to be the final winner by being the meek, who will inherit the earth. Instead, we just push that to the side as all that garnish that perhaps we don't need in the meal, instead of realizing that it's essential for us to reflect our Savior Jesus Christ. And lastly, we see even in our own context in Galatians chapter 6, when we seek to restore someone who's not just wrong, but in sin. Notice he says, brothers, I know you were wondering, will we ever get to Galatians 6.1? Well, we are in this moment, and we will in just a couple weeks. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And this great Paul is saying, look, because we're human beings, because we're not perfect, because even though the Spirit is working in us, we don't see it manifested in perfection to this point, we're still going to fail. We're still going to sin. That's why we have to confess our sin. Uh, Day in and day out, week in and week out as we gather for worship. But when we see someone in sin, how do we restore them? We're gentle. We're gentle. Why? Because we understand that like them, we're sinners in need of grace as well. Because like them, we need to come to the gentle and lowly Jesus who will give rest to our souls. And so we're gentle with them because we want them to see the gentleness and the open arms of Jesus who will receive them and help them in their labors and be free from their burdens. And we do it with gentleness. And do you notice that the clause that Paul, and we'll talk about it, I'm sure, in a couple weeks, but the clause that Paul adds to this, he says, 
Keep watch over yourself lest you too be tempted. I actually think that these two things are connected. Being gentle with someone in sin and avoiding being tempted in a similar way, I think, are connected. Because too often when we're not gentle with the person who's struggling with some kind of sin, whether it be verbal or emotional or whether it be sexual or violent or whatever it may be, when we are prideful, when we are boastful, when we are arrogant and self-assertive in our spirit, when we correct them, then what we are saying is this sin is something that is just completely beyond us. I can barely even understand. There's no way I would commit it. And when we get like that, we open ourselves wide to that temptation. I remember, and I'll close with this, years ago when I was in school, uh, I was in school right after there was just sort of a avalanche of pastors in gospel ministry who had fallen into sexual sin. And I was sitting there uh, in a classroom full of future pastors. There were about 90 of us sitting in the room. It was a very large class. And one of our professors decided to finally address the reality of all of this devastation that had happened in the lives and the families and the churches of these pastors. And, he, and this professor said to all of us, each of you needs to guard your own heart against, against the temptation of people pleasing and finding your affirmation and others that can often lead to this all of you, all of you, 90 students sitting here need to realize that you are prone to the same weakness and the same potential error and the same destruction. And he said, there are two or three of you who right now are saying that could never happen to me. He said, you're the man. You're the man because you don't know yourself. You don't know your heart. You don't understand. And isn't that the way it is? That so often we are so quick to become judgmental to those who are in sin. And there is no gentleness but harshness. And we often are that way because we have become hardened to our own susceptibility to the very same sin. To the very same thing. Here in Galatians 6, 1, the Apostle Paul said, that's why you need to be gentle. Because you, friend, are in need of a relationship with the gentle and lowly Jesus. You need to respond to his call. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That is an invitation to each and every one of us. And when we come to him, his gentleness works through his spirit in our life that we begin to reflect his heart more beautifully in our lives and in our words. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you and thank you for how kind and good you are to us. We pray, O oh Lord, that while gentleness is certainly not in vogue in our world, may it be a precious virtue and our hearts as we follow the gentle and lowly Jesus. And as we seek to be the meek who will inherit the earth, whether we're giving a reason for the hope that is within us, whether we are correcting someone in error or we are restoring someone in sin, may our lives be characterized by your gentleness, Jesus. 
working in and through us by the power of your Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.